Welcome to this podcast from the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice at McKinsey & Company. I'm Dennis Swinford, podcast editor. Merger and acquisition activity declined in 2016, whether you look at the number of deals, the combined value of deals, or the amount of value created. But does that mean an end to the upward wave of M&A activity that had been building since 2009? In this March 2017 conversation, McKinsey's Michael Park speaks with Werner Rem about the trends over the past year and offers an optimistic assessment for 2017. Werner Rem is a partner in McKinsey's New York office, where Michael Park is a senior partner and a leader in the firm's transaction service line. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Werner. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, we have now March 2017, a couple of months away, a couple of months after the sort of somewhat low deal volume that we saw in 2016, and we wanted to chat a little bit about what, you know where you see this going. Are we at the beginning of the wave, the end of a wave? What's happening? So maybe we should start with what happened in 2016, where my understanding is we basically saw a reversion to the mean in terms of mega deals, and that drove the overall volume down. Right. Well, I think it's important to think about it in perspective, right? We were coming off of a wave of really unprecedented volume as well as size of deals. And to your point, I think it's a little bit of a reversion to mean, but it's still a pretty high level, right? I mean, if we were in the middle of 2000s looking at what 2016 or could forecast what 2016 was, I don't think we would have said 2016 would have been as high as it was. So I still think of it being on, you know, in the wave. Um, obviously, 2016 was lower, but you know, I still see in my clients and I think in the industry a lot of trends that would push for M&A. And as a result, you know, I don't see any reason why we should expect a huge drop-off in 2017, 2018. One can never predict the future, but I do think there's a lot of tailwinds still for M&A in the next couple of years. So you have come out and said that you see that tailwind sort of a being a push for larger deals, sort of a little bit of a return if you want, or at least more mega deals than we've seen in the past. And I think by mega deals, you mean sort of $10 billion and above, right? What are sort of some of the things that makes you think that, that this is going to happen? I just think in a low-growth world, and if you look around developed markets especially, and frankly, even developing markets, it's unclear where the 3-plus percent growth is likely to come from, right? You know, I think we all hope that core GDP growth will be 2, 3-plus, but I think we see a lot of reasons why it might be muted with a lot of the geopolitical things that are going on. And so as I think boards and management teams think about how to deliver, they have to look at things like M&A, right? Um, if the core markets are not growing that quickly, well, then you look at M&A for everything from geographic expansion, additional product lines to sell through your existing channels, and then consolidation so that you can drive more pricing or more opportunity through your base business. So in this kind of low-growth world that we find ourselves in, I think we are, have been in for quite a while. I think you're going to see continued look at M&A, especially the big ones, because I think the other thing that we've found in the last couple of years is that, it, you know, for especially these large companies, if you don't do a big deal and if instead you're doing a small deal, it's very hard to actually get the attention of the company. And with the big complex companies that we have, you know, in, in our industries, you know, if it's not a big enough deal to move the needle, it's it's very difficult to do all the things that you have to do to make an M&A successful. Now, by the way, you can do this through one big deal or a couple of small deals that mean big. But to your point, I think, you know, if to get to uh, – I do think we're going to see more big M&A uh, for the reason of you just have more inertia when it comes to smaller stuff. So the lack of organic growth driving 
executives and corporations to M&A growth. Why is that so important? I mean, there are many other levers that you can pull if you're an executive. I mean, we see companies even splitting up and becoming smaller, right, in right. the spirit of being targeted and higher, higher profitability for the individual businesses. So right. how does that fit all together if I'm a large company today that needs to do, quite frankly, a large deal or a lot of deals in order to find that growth? Right. You kind of work down the list, right? I think everybody's been looking at base cost reduction, you know, your core cost out, taking out GNA. And that, that certainly has, I think, still momentum, and there's ways to do that. So, again, in a low-growth world, that's one lever you certainly pull. But, frankly, I think there's a lot of lagging enthusiasm, you know, for continued base cost reduction. So that's one. Then you start to look at, okay, or you know, your typical, uh, let me build capital, let me build a product. And when you have these weak demand signals, it's very hard to get the ROI for a lot of those things to, to pan out. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of hesitancy from companies uh, to making the kind of typical organic growth investments, right? And then you say, okay, well, what are the next couple of things? And then it starts to look like more step-outs. It looks like maybe it's digital capabilities. Maybe it's uh, different product lines I was mentioning before. If you think about those types of growth levers, you, you start to very quickly get to M&A, right? Because it's very difficult often for our clients and companies to to get into new areas, purely organically. And frankly, there's not that many companies that have successfully done that without having built, you know, bought, uh, bought other firms. So I think that's, um, that's the reason why, again, I, you know, there certainly will be other cases, right? But by and large, I still think companies are going to look towards M&A to, to drive that growth when that inherent growth rate is not that, not that robust. So in, in the past, though, in many industries, a large deals especially consolidation deals, meant cost-cutting, right? We look at the pharma industry where it's basically, you know, synergies in the sales force plus synergy in R&D justify most of the deals, right? Yep. So is that going to be different here in, in, in the world that you're describing as we go for growth? I think it has to be looking at other things besides cost-cutting to drive and make the business case for a lot of M&A, Werner. You have to look at, uh, first of all, that you have a lot of, uh, high multiples that are out there. You have a lot of competition as well, right, uh, both from strategics but also the PE firms. And I think we're at a record level of dry powder that the PE firms have. And so I think you have to have teams looking at not just cost-cutting but cost-cutting plus growth in order to justify the M&A cases in a lot of deals. And what the, the nice thing is I think if you look at the last couple of years, because of the experience that M&A teams have coming off of this big wave, I think you're finding that management teams are more willing to underwrite the case for growth synergies and other types of synergies that aren't just your typical headquarters consolidation, uh, back office consolidation type cost synergies. And so I think we're going to, I think, at least see more and more of a balance back towards growth-type deals, deals that not only are about cost reduction, but also about expansion, about synergies, about doing more uh, on the top line as well. And so I think that's how, or at least, again, to me, if you don't do that, then I just don't know how you're going to be competitive, right? If you don't have an ability to do that, you're not going to be able to either beat the P firm bid or the... Um, or the strategic bid, or justify, frankly, to your board that the multiple that you're about to pay is going to make sense. So, so practically speaking, if I'm an executive, um, if I'm a CEO, how, how do I think about the different types of sort of the growth that, that, that you would expect from, from larger deals, right? Because I can buy something completely outside of my core business because it's cool and growing. I can presumably maybe buy something that fits better with stuff that I have, maybe the same customer. What are the sort of categories 
if you want that you see for large deals that, that could drive growth. So I think that's exactly the way to think about it. And again, from McKinsey's point of view, you always start with the strategy, right? Um, you know, what is the strategy of the company? How does the M&A then fit into that strategy? And to your point, there's a couple of different archetypes that you could imagine, right? And of course, this will differ based on the industry and so on. But, you know, there's deals where you are talking about, you know, leveraging your existing channels to market, your existing customer base, and you're adding product breath, right? And those are deals that we've seen in the software space. We've seen in the IT space for some time. So a little bit of it in pharma as well, a little bit of industrial, but where you're taking kind of an existing sales force and you're able to add an, into that product uh, products that you wouldn't otherwise have, right, through M&A. There's, I think, other kinds of growth M&A where you're talking about, especially with digital, with analytics, with um, uh, more advanced capabilities, where you're taking, quote-unquote, a core business that, is more analog, I guess, and adding digital capabilities. And so uh, you're able to then use uh, or monetize that with greater service, greater pricing, uh, better outcomes for the customer. And I think you're going to see the class of deals that fit into that category too. You know, I think there's another set of deals, albeit I think going to be smaller, where it is truly, as you said, a step out. It's a new product that you've never done before. I think there's often going to, and rightfully so, a lot of scrutiny as to whether those deals really make sense. But I do think, you know, in some places, companies will do that. And there, people have to get very disciplined around what are the capabilities the acquiring company really brings to the table? Or is this just a shiny business in a growing industry that we like and we're just going to end up paying a high premium for? But those are kind of three. The fourth one is, of course, the geographic one, right? So I got a business model that works, uh, and I'm very concentrated in you know, North America and, and Latin America, and I want to be able to do that in Europe. Again, organically doing that's often very difficult. Building a services infrastructure and a sales infrastructure very difficult. What's the channel, or sorry, what's the way I can do that? Is there an M&A that I can do that um, uh, would allow me to, to, to build that geographic expansion? I think that would be the, kind of the fourth category. And so, you know, I do think this is where I think management teams and M&A teams need to spend a lot of time is what are the archetypes of deals and where is it that I want to uh, place my chips or how, as I think about M&A, which is the avenues I want to pursue? Because what we don't think works is to kind of do a little bit of all of those, right? Uh, M&A, like anything else, is a management discipline, and, and you've got to put a playbook behind it, get people trained on it, um, a management system behind it. And I think it's only something you can really do around one or two at most archetypes. Yeah, the one or two themes uh, that, that derive from the strategy that would drive your sort of M&A strategy, right? And with M&A being a process or a, a, a tool if you want to achieve your overall strategy, not a strategy by itself. Exactly. So maybe let's say now I'm, you know, walk through my imaginary executive uh, decision process here again, right? So now I have identified a few potential targets. We see just based on experience and comfort level boards and investors, you know, liking cost synergies and not liking revenue synergies, quite frankly. If a company announces one versus the other, there's a lot of, you know, belief that you can get the cost out, not so much, or let's say more skepticism on the revenue side. Have you done some research, some some thoughts on that? Is that is that true? Do companies truly not achieve the revenue synergies they target? I think we're seeing a lot of change here. So definitely the conventional wisdom is that cost synergies are easy to execute and therefore easy to underwrite. And I think that will that comfort level will you know advantage will, will remain. I also think that it's less uh, that we're we're going to continue to see public announcements where deals are underwritten 
on the basis of cost synergies, right? So if you look at some of the recent big deals that are out there, you know, most times management teams will lead with cost. That said, I think we're seeing a lot more comfort inside the boardroom and the management team room around the ability to execute and realize uh, revenue synergies as well. I think in a lot of the big deals that you've seen in the recent, call it uh, four or five quarters, uh, more and more emphasis there, particularly around sending product through the same channel and then around digital and and the services, uh, analytics and services that can go with other products. And I do think this is an area where teams have become more comfortable and boards are a little bit more comfortable. Now, will they scrutinize that more? Sure. But I do think you are seeing more and more comfort there than, frankly, probably any, any time before. And it's nice that at this point, M&A teams actually have some track record here. And so for some teams who have been able to drive revenue, top-line growth through synergies, you know, honestly, I think uh, they're going to have an easier case to make internally that they can underwrite those, and boards of management teams are more willing to go there. Is there any consequence here? It, it occurs to me that what, what you're talking about is real understanding of how the businesses fit together, how together they can be sort of more value creation and capture more of the growth, right? Absolutely. And this is why I think you start with strategy before you get to M&A, because you do, to your point, have to understand what's the real value and upside here. And that's where understanding things like the business model of the of the target, understanding the strategic headwinds and tailwinds in the industry, I think, are very important. If, for instance, scale matters in that industry and working customer back, customer see value in that scale, then, yeah, even in, I think, a low-growth market, you could imagine market share via, you know, the combination, right, and creating, again, real uh, top-line synergies. But to your point, that requires a heck of a lot more analysis and, I think, detailed understanding of the strategic headwinds and tailwinds of a business. So it's a, it does put, a, I think, a more of an emphasis on M&A teams to be more strategic, more thoughtful when it comes to these investment theses. The other thing I think it requires you to do is also be much more savvy on the cultural and or, uh, organizational side. Because if you want to accomplish revenue synergies. You almost always have to do that in concert and collaboration with the acquired company. And let's be honest, if you are doing just cost synergies, you can kind of take over, right? Take one management team's playbook and you replace or cut uh, a lot of the targets, people and back office and playbooks. When you're talking about revenue synergies, you've really got to figure out if there's a match. And we've seen many deals fail because even if the product fits the strategy makes a lot of sense, but if the culture and organization isn't set up to, you know, to mesh with it between target and acquire, you don't get those revenue and uh, top-line synergies. And so, again, I do think this does require M&A teams and strategy teams to just be a, a lot more thoughtful and have a much better view of what the investment thesis is. So, Michael, I want to loop back quickly to um, what you said in the beginning, that there is maybe a trend towards these large deals. On the other hand, we have found that sort of historical analysis shows that that series of small deals that together are meaningful actually have better return to shareholders than large deals in the past. That companies that acquire five to ten companies a year over a long time frames, decade, decade and a half, have better returns than companies that do the occasional large deal. How do you square that past research with the vision that you lay out here for the the future of large deals? Right. I think the key word you mentioned is meaningful. If the deals are meaningful, whether it's one big deal or several smaller deals that amount to something meaningful, uh, or mid-sized deals for that matter, and those deals 
then add up to not just a great amount of mass, but also are concentrated in one or two of these themes that we've been talking about. I think then, you know, both strategies can work. And to your point, the math and the data would suggest that the second option, you know, multiple deals that add up to a lot that are concentrated around a theme is a better way to go. And and again, intuitively, and what we've seen in our client experience, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's where these teams are able to articulate a strategy and then translate that into M&A around a particular value proposition, which then that team gets actually good at executing, right? So that when they do the third and then the fourth and then the fifth deal, again, it's almost like it's the same team that, that has been there, done that, right? And and it's not just a team, it's the advisors, it's the functional staff, it's it's all sorts of folks, and, and, and it's almost like a muscle that gets built. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Michael, for the time. I'm going to end this with, with, uh, with something where we, we're definitely going to be wrong. So what is your prediction for 2017 M&A market? Higher than 14, higher than 15, higher than 16? What do you think? I'm going to go contrarian and say that we're going to see a big rebound in the in the second half of the year. I I wonder if the first half of the year, the first quarter has been burdened a little bit by just all this geopolitics and uncertainty on that front and maybe that accounts for some of the slow start. Uh, but I wonder if we're going to see a big rebound uh, in the third and fourth quarter that gets us back to kind of 20, call it 26, uh, 2015 levels. So I'll go there. You go there. Okay. We'll come back to you in 12 months and see what happened. Sounds good. Thanks again for your time. Terrific. Thanks for having me.